Well, don't you just love it when things work like they're supposed to work? Don't you love that? We have a couple of older cars that we drive, and of course, in both of them, the check engine lights on the dashboard, those little idiot lights, they're on all the time, (laughs) kind of bugs me. So recently, I saw an ad on YouTube for this little cube-like plug-in device, also an app, a companion app that you download on your smartphone, and when you plug the little device into your car, it's supposed to pop up on your phone the reason that your check engine light is on. Pretty cool, right? So I ordered it, and uh, when it arrived, I immediately, of course, went out and plugged it into one of my vehicles, and guess what? It worked. It actually worked. It did what it was supposed to do, and you know what else? On the app, there's this little button that you can tap, and if you do that, it makes the engine light go away. I love that. How great is that? No more idiot lights to bother me. Now, no, it doesn't actually fix anything. It doesn't fix the actual problem. Really, it just hides it from me, which is really why I bought the thing in the first place, so I could remain blissfully ignorant of all the issues and problems that my cars have. And it does that. It works. When things work like they're supposed to work, it's a beautiful thing. You know what? The same is true of the church of Jesus. When it's working like it's supposed to work, when it's functioning like its founder designed it, it's a beautiful, beautiful thing. I just think everybody needs a church family, whether they realize it or not. And when, when God links someone up with a church family that's working right, There's so much blessing, so much glory, so much good that happens. I like to say there's nothing quite like the church when it's working right. And so these last four weeks, we've been studying and exploring Jesus' church from a a key passage in the New Testament, from Ephesians chapter 4. And today we're wrapping it up, okay? We're finishing up this series today. And in the particular section we're looking at today, some Bible scholars have called it the blueprint for a healthy church, which implies that there's this set of drawings, so to speak, that a skilled designer, a master architect has sketched out for how the church is supposed to be built and how it's supposed to work. And so if you haven't pulled the little study notes out of your worship folder yet, go ahead and do that so you can track with me. And one final time, I'd like us to pour over those blueprints, okay, those instructions for a healthy church church. Ephesians 4, I'm going to start reading beginning with verse 11. It was he, speaking of Jesus, Jesus gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers to prepare God's people or to equip God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants, tossed back and forth by the waves, blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of men in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love. We will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is Christ. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows 
and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. As each part does its work. I want you to especially remember that last phrase. We're going to come back to that. So here it is. The the master's design, the architect's design, it's brilliant. It's patterned after what? A human body. So the church of Jesus is meant to function like a living organism, like a body. And we're all familiar with bodies, right? Because we all have one. The body, of course, has a head. And it also has a variety of different parts or members. Verse 15 here tells us that the head of the church body is Christ, Jesus. That's right. He's the head. And then verse 16 makes it clear that it's the individual Christians who are the members of the body. The different limbs and joints and organs and muscles that work together and make up the body and hold everything together. And it was designed to all work together as a unit and and to be healthy and to grow like our physical bodies do. And when things work like they're supposed to, it's a beautiful thing to behold, a beautiful thing to be a part of. So when I read this passage, several concepts, key concepts emerge from this picture of the church as a body, and I want to touch on them. First is this concept of primary source, primary source, that everything the body needs to thrive flows from the head down into the body, like it says in verse 16, from him, from the head. The whole body grows and builds itself up. So Jesus Christ, the head of the body, is the source, right, that we should be looking to for all the direction that we need to move forward. It comes from the head for all the love that we need to love our neighbors as he's called us to. Jesus is the source of power to live holy lives that reflect his character and his nature. He's the source, the only source we need for wisdom, protection, for correction, for power, for passion, for energy. It all flows down from the head into the body, from the the director, from the source, from Jesus. And when the church is working right, it's looking to the head for everything that it needs. Amen? So there's this notion of primary source. Then there's this concept of healthy interdependence. And that that means that the individual members of the body need each other in order to function well. Just like in your body, just like your lungs need your heart and your eyes need your brain and the limbs all work in concert with the muscles. Well, in a healthy body. Our bodies, we know this, are not a collection of disconnected parts that all operate independently of each other. No, our members all work together as a unit. At least that's how they were designed to function. So, healthy interdependence. We also see in this short passage the the concept of, let's call it active participation, okay? Or full functioning. So, That means that every single member needs to understand that they each have an important function that contributes to the overall health of the whole body. 
And we know this, right? We know this from how our own bodies work. If your kidney decides to take a month off, hey, I'm taking September off. That's a problem, right? That poses a problem. That impairs your health. If you have your gallbladder removed like I did, now you're supposed to take these little pills every day to compensate for the deficit that now exists because the gallbladder is no longer present to perform its function. Every single member is needed. Everyone's active participation is vital for the flourishing and thriving of the body. And then there's this principle of self-sustaining growth. Self-sustaining growth. And we know this. We were taught it in biology class, right? Healthy organisms just grow and reproduce all by themselves. There's something in this life principle within living organisms that just causes them to grow. We know this from observing nature. We know it from how our own bodies work. It's called the biotic principle. The biotic principle. Living things that are healthy grow. Now here it talks about the body being built up in verses 12 and 16. It talks about the body growing in verses 15 and 16. And so this is organic growth. This is the kind of growth that's not artificially stimulated from the outside by injecting some synthetic substance, some man-made formula. No, this is growth that comes organically and naturally from the spread of life throughout the body, which flows from the head down into all the regions of the body. So this kind of life that we have, it's called Zoe life in the Bible. God's kind of life, it's irrepressible. It grows, it has to grow, it must grow. And then how about this next principle of Christ-like love? Yeah, Christ-like love. When a body of believers is healthy and working right, I want to say this, there's lots of love. There's plenty of love to go around for everyone, and not just for everyone in the body, but even spilling over into our community, into our neighborhood, and around the world. And the reason that there's enough love to go around is because we're being resupplied regularly by the head, right? Who has an unlimited supply of love. Can I just remind you today that Jesus Christ is love? Now, as a kid, we sang that little song, Deep and Wide, Deep and Wide. That's talking about the heart of God. Deep, wide enough to love every kind of person on the planet. There's enough love coming, flowing from the head into us. And we know that this isn't some kind of gooey, syrupy, romantic love. It's not a love that goes around affirming everything and tolerating any kind of behavior. No, no. This is truth-telling love, like it says in verse 15, speaking the truth in love. And that's because Jesus is not only love, but he is also what? Truth. Didn't he say, I am the way, the truth, and the life? He's both. And these two things, truth and love, they're interrelated. They fuel each other. They feed each other. Christ-like love, listen, speaks truth to fellow members of the body. It doesn't coddle sin. It doesn't tolerate sin. It addresses it. Hopefully we all realize that in this body of Christ, sin is like a bacteria. 
like a germ that causes disease in the body. So speaking truth to each other is actually a loving thing to do if it's done right. If it's done in humility, and humility and gentleness. So this concept of Christ-like love in a body that's working right. We can pretty easily see each of these concepts are here present in this passage in Ephesians 4, these aspects of a healthy church body. We need all of them. But there's one more concept seen here that I want to point out and really focus on for the rest of our time here together. And I've heard it called like a prescription for a healthy church, like a doctor's prescription for getting healthy or or staying healthy. And this is a concept that the Bible prescribes for a church body so that it will be healthy and thrive and flourish. I've taken to calling it member-centered ministry. Member-centered ministry. This idea is found in verses 11 and 12 of Ephesians 4. It's also alluded to again in verse 16. For many Christians who have some history with the church... This concept of member-centered ministry can be a revolutionary concept. It certainly was a jolt for those of us who were in leadership here at New Life in the early days. And some of you know the story. We were a bunch of 20-somethings who Jesus had captured and sent us on mission together. And we were contemplating moving from Virginia to this place called Columbus, Ohio. Start a church together as a team back in the 80s. It was during that season when somebody shared with us this concept of member-centered ministry based out of this passage, Ephesians chapter 4. And, and i got to tell you, it really rocked us. It rattled us. And, and really it came to transform our vision of what the local church could be and could look like. It was very different from what any of us on that team had experienced in church up to that point, or what we had taught, because what we had experienced in church could probably best be described not as member-centered ministry, but as pastor-centered ministry. So I want to talk about this for a few minutes, because it might be a jolt to you. I don't know. We could probably put these two concepts on kind of a scale or a spectrum with these at the outer ends, okay? And really, every church that you might encounter could be placed somewhere on this continuum, either leaning towards pastor-centered ministry or towards member-centered ministry. I wonder which paradigm most churches in the United States lean towards. I'd like to compare and contrast these two very different paradigms. Maybe you could call them operating systems for how ministry gets carried out in the local church. Perhaps some of this will intersect some of your experience with the church. So let me start by talking about what I'm terming pastor-centered ministry in the church, okay? This is uh, what what I grew up with. This is what really, in many churches, it's all that they've ever known. In this paradigm, in this model, pastors do most of the ministering. Uh, that's why the congregation, it's thought, hired themselves a pastor to do the ministry, right? The members receive that ministry from the pastor. They, they watch him minister to the others in the congregation. This is really, in certain kinds of churches, the traditional pattern. And in Mark chapter 7, Jesus had, to say, had some things to say about 
when we let tradition overwhelm or override the Word of God. Well, in this kind of a church, a pastor-centered church, if the church is going to thrive, if it's going to grow, if it's going to flourish, then the pastor needs to be multi-gifted. He needs to be good at a lot of different things. Preaching, praying, planning, strategizing, counseling, administrating, performing weddings and funerals. All of these things, the pastor needs to be multi-gifted, or there needs to be a lot of them in order for the church to thrive and grow because there are a lot of needs in a church body. I believe this model is limited, just makes sense, by the ability, gifts, energy, and presence of the pastor and the number of pastors on staff. That's the ceiling, that's the limitation to a church that's operating this way. I would contend that in this kind of a ministry, where the pastor is kind of the focal point of all the ministry, that short-term the results can look really good, really impressive, especially if the pastor's talented and gifted and dynamic and magnetic and all of that. Because, you know, people will kind of flock there and there's a lot going on. But I would contend that in the long run, in the long run, pastor-centered ministry can be devastating. Every church I grew up in imploded. And that's been the case for a number of you who've told me your stories. Every church my family was in was definitely in pastor-centered ministry, embraced that model of ministry, and they all imploded. The pastors all had moral failures. They all got out of the ministry. Devastating. Pastoral burnout. You may not be aware of this, but there's an epidemic of pastors leaving the ministry thousands and thousands every month. It's heartbreaking. Family fallout for the pastor's family. The kids grow to resent their dad because he's always out meeting everybody else's needs. He's not, he's not at home much. He's not, you know, there when he's there. Frustration. Most, most pastors I know got into the ministry because they love people and they want to meet needs. And, but here in, in the church now, there's so many needs, they can't quite get to everybody. Maybe they're spending their time with the newer people and the, the longer-term members are becoming disgruntled because they're not receiving much attention. Or maybe it's the other way around. He's giving all of his attention to the long-term members and the new people feel neglected. There's frustration and pride. I mean, think about it. If I'm the sole source of nourishment for all the people of God, man, that can just puff somebody up with pride. And what's the problem with pride? Pride goes before a fall. And this happens over and over and over and over and over in the kingdom of God. And it's tragic. And it doesn't have to be that way. All right. If you connecting somewhat with what I'm saying so far in this model, just nod your head like this, okay? Some of you have seen this. Okay. There is another paradigm. Member-centered ministry. In this kind of a church, the members are the ones who actually do most of the ministering. Pastors do minister, minister, of course, but their primary function is to train and empower and open doors and release members to minister in the body of Christ. We came to believe as young pastors that this is the biblical pattern laid out for us here in Ephesians chapter 4. In a church that's operating like this, it's the members who need to be multi-gifted for the church to thrive and flourish, and guess what? They are. You'd be amazed at the giftedness just in this room right now. 
There are limitations to member-centered ministry. It's limited by the pastor's commitment to train. So you've got to realize that pastoral ministry is heady stuff. I mean, there's lives being transformed. There's people being saved and baptized and going to the ministry. And there are a lot of pastors who want to hog that all for themselves. Say, no, 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 I'm not sharing this. This is so good. It's filling my tanks. But if this is going to happen, pastors have to be willing to share the ministry. It's also limited by the member's willingness to step up and receive equipping and training. It's also limited by the member's willingness to accept ministry from other members and not just from pastors. Oh, I only need the clergy to come and minister to me. The results of member-centered ministry, I would concede, in the short term can be unimpressive, not record-setting, because it takes time to train and equip members to do ministry. And sometimes you invest heavily in someone or a couple and they move to Louisiana. And then you start over again with someone else. It takes time. Unimpressive in the short term, but I tell you, in the long term, this gets it done. Pastoral vitality, right? Fulfillment, I like this, I'm a pastor, I like that part. Humility, is it good for pastors to be humble? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right? It's like they don't all need me. There's people ministering to each other, there's stuff going on I didn't even know about. Good kingdom stuff. Members, mature, because part of growing up in maturity is ministering. That's how God designed it in the church. We grow as we give our lives away to others. Stability comes into their lives and fulfillment and joy. It's like, yes, I'm a member of this church. I'm being called into the game to use my gifts and experiences and abilities to bless the body of Christ. Yes, I knew I had something to offer. And as a result, the church becomes more stable and the the growth potential is really unlimited. When I used to teach this to our New Life class, because we live in Buckeye country, I would often use a football analogy, especially if it was in the fall, like we are right now. And I would stand up in front of our class and I would talk about how absurd it would be to have been able to acquire tickets to the OSU-Michigan football game, home game, you know, uh, forfeit your right arm or right leg or your firstborn, whatever it takes to get tickets. You got them. You're going to the game. The excitement is building. The anticipation is building. All the hype around that game. You get there. You take your seat high, 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 high up in the nosebleed section. You're looking down on the field. The crowd's getting into it. The, everybody runs out onto the field, and you're thinking, this is going to be awesome. I'm here. I'm at the Ohio State-Michigan game. It's awesome. And as they get ready to kick off, the crowd's going wild. You see the Michigan player team getting ready to kick off. And you look down, and there on the goal line, standing on the goal line, ready to receive the kickoff, is the coach. And you're going, um, this is going to be an interesting game. Of course, I would have some fun with it when I taught this, you know. Um, you got a 50 or 60 year old guy on the goal line, you know, here comes the kickoff. And, you know, he catches it and fumbles it, of course, picks it up, wham! 12 meaty, beefy, 20-year-old Michigan players annihilate the coach, drive his face into the turf, and you're sitting up there going, this is going to be an interesting game. Then you notice over on, over on the bench, the players 
The Buckeye players are not on the field. They're on the bench. And they're going, yay, coach, come on, you can do it. And you're thinking, this is going to be an interesting game. And then the coach huddles with himself, because he's the only one out there on the field. He calls a running play with no blocking. He takes the ball, wham! He gets demolished again. He has to pull his head out of the turf. And the players who were cheering are now like, coach, why'd you call that play? That was a stupid call. What are you doing? Then I'd look at the class and I would ask, would you pay good money to go see a game like that? Now, I will tell you, in the John Cooper era, there were people who said, yeah, I'd pay a lot of money to see Cooper's face smashed into the turf like that. I mean, you know, it's totally absurd, right? We all understand that teams do best and score touchdowns and win games when coaches are allowed to coach and players are allowed to play. That's how victory comes about, right? So what do coaches do? Coaches recruit. Coaches equip and train and condition the players. Coaches prepare the game plan, motivate and inspire the players, release them out on the field to play the game. Players train hard, get in shape, learn their role, learn the system, and go out on the field and make tackles and carry the ball and score touchdowns and win the game. Now, I know the analogy breaks down. Don't take it too far. It breaks down at some point. But usually it got the point across. And I'm telling you today that Jesus Christ, the head of the church, is a fan of member-centered ministry in his church, not pastor-centered ministry. That's the design. That's the pattern he laid out here in Ephesians 4. But I also realize it's often true, like it was for us, that adopting this, embracing this, can be a big change if you're accustomed to pastor-centered ministry in a church. It requires a mind shift. Let me see if I can identify a few of the shifts necessary for this to be fully embraced and to work well in a church body. First, pastors have to put greater priority on training and equipping and empowering members to minister. Second, pastors must not allow members to push them to do ministry that members are called to do and may even be better equipped to do. Third, members must be willing to step up and receive necessary training and equipping and encouragement and accountability and all that so they can minister. Fourth, members must assume more responsibility for ministering to each other and have their antenna up at all times. Lord, where are the needs in the body now? Where is a need that you want me to meet? And fifth, members must learn to accept ministry from each other and not just from pastors. So I would stand up and tell people, you know, if, you're, if you get sick and need to go in the hospital and your small group that you're involved in comes to the hospital, this happens all the time, it's happened in my small group, comes to the hospital and visits you. Maybe they even have their group meeting in your hospital room. And they care for you and they ask how you're doing and they pray over you. I would look at the people and say, you know what, if that happens, that counts. You've been ministered to by the body. Don't go around saying, my church didn't really minister to me. My pastors don't care. No, no, no. Now listen, I'm in the hospitals all the time. Don't get the wrong idea about this, okay? 
But if somebody in the body ministers to you, that counts. You've been ministered to. Don't, don't, don't walk around saying, well, the clergy didn't come. You know? <laughs> and when you talk about the clergy, you have to use that voice, right? <laughs> Kermit voice, I guess. Don't say that. Kermit clergy voice. Anyway. It counts when the body is ministering. That's how it's supposed to work. And when the body works like it's supposed to work, it's a beautiful thing. Around here, I hear about ministry happening after it happens. You know, I'll, I'll, Facebook or somebody will tell me, hey, somebody, somebody's counseling somebody, somebody's ministering to somebody, somebody's bringing groceries to this person, this small group went out and did this. All kinds of ministries happening that I'm not involved with, and I love it. It's a little bit out of control decentralized as opposed to all centralized in that one person who becomes a bottleneck. Say, is that biblical? Look again at the the pattern here in Ephesians 4.11. It was Jesus who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, some to be pastors and teachers, the leaders of the church, to what? Prepare God's people for works of service. One translation says to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. Who does ministry? Saints, the equipped saints, so that the body of Christ may be built up. Verse 16, from him the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Is that describing pastor-centered ministry or is it describing member-centered ministry? Especially considering that last phrase, as each part does its work. The body grows and builds itself up in love. So say this, there's work for me to do here. Say that. There's work for me to do here. The body needs me. I have an important role. The church's health is at stake. The head of the church has called me into the game. My team needs me. It's true. It's how he designed it. So here's how it's supposed to work in the body of Christ. Jesus Christ, the crucified, risen, and now ascended Lord and head of his church, distributes to each member of his church at least one spiritual gift that you have if you're a believer in the body of Christ. One spiritual gift, which is a special desire and ability that enables you to fill a needed function in the body, something you're good at, something you enjoy, something that blesses other people in some way. Your spiritual gift given to you by the head of the church, Jesus, which if you use it, causes the body to be healthier. Then, Jesus calls some of his people to be spiritual leaders in his church. I like to call them shepherd leaders. And he gives them corresponding leadership gifts that enable them to better equip God's people to to minister. Then Jesus gives those leaders, as he sees fit, to his different churches to serve those churches. These spiritual leaders are faithful to equip God's gifted people with the things they need to minister effectively to each other. Each member of the church identifies their own giftings, then through a process discovers their particular function in the body 
and goes to work, like it says, as each part does its work, goes to work, ministering to other people. I would add with great satisfaction, fulfillment, and joy. And as a result, the church body is built up, results in unity and stability and healthy growth and maturity and Christ-like love, and Jesus is glorified in and through his church. That is how it's supposed to work. And when the church works like it was designed and supposed to work, it is a beautiful thing to behold and to be a part of. I'm thinking of the guy in our church He's here last hour. Who just, when you see him serving in Awana Cubbies, he just comes alive. I get Facebook pictures. People send me things showing this guy, and he's, he's beaming. He's, he just he loves kids. He loves representing Jesus to kids, and he just has a ball in there. And it is so fun to see his face. Loving it ministering to the little ones. I'm thinking of the greeter who told me once, I just love doing what I get to do here, Pastor Steve, because I'm a greeter and I love meeting new people. I'm wired to meet new people. I'm good at helping people feel welcomed and kind of, you know, setting them at ease and melting away their anxiety. I love what I get to do here. I'm thinking of our small group leaders. We had some training for them a couple weeks ago. A whole room full of small group leaders who care for, and pray for and watch over and guide a little platoon of Christ's people, a group every week. These small group leaders are our frontline ministers in this church at both campuses. So grateful for them. I'm thinking of those who use their gifts to serve in kids' life ministry or on our outreach teams or short-term missions team, on our worship teams, for those who serve in our tech ministry. Here, think about that. Without these guys and gals serving in our tech ministry, you wouldn't be able to see me or hear me or sing along. I mean, thank you. You are God's gift to us. <laughs> Buy me a Frosty later. <laughs> I think of people in our church who are just wired and inclined to pray over people who are sick. They're just gifted and wired that way. They kind of gravitate. They love praying for God's healing, laying hands and praying for God's healing over people. That's just that's what they do. They're part of the body. That's their function. Like a kidney doing what kidneys do or a big toe doing what big toes do. That's what these people do. All of these wonders. Some of you are thinking, am I the big toe in the body here? All of these wonderful servants of Christ in the game, on the field, to mix metaphors a little bit, using their gifts to bless the body. Again, when things are working like they're supposed to work, it's a beautiful, beautiful thing. Listen, I, I uh, once read a book for pastors. I think it was for young people getting into the ministry. The author said this, kind of uh, giving him a heads up, I think, about church life. He said, when it comes to involvement... Just realize, pastor, that there are three kinds of people sitting in your pews. Well, we don't have pews, but three kinds of people in the room. Spectators, consumers, and participants. Spectators come to church when it's convenient. They don't have anything else going on. They enjoy watching others use their gifts to minister. They generally like what's going on. 
And occasionally they'll throw a few bucks in the offering plate in appreciation. Consumers come as long as their needs are being met. They have high expectations for how they and their kids should be ministered to. They can be pretty critical if things aren't going the way they like. They're always looking for a better deal out there somewhere. And sometimes when they come to church, before they leave, they'll leave a tip. Participants make weekend worship with their church family a priority in their life. They commit to connecting regularly with a few close brothers and sisters in a small group to serve together and do life together. They're eager to offer themselves to serve their church family wherever they're needed, and they're faithful and consistent in doing so. And they love investing heavily in God's kingdom work through their church. They are all in with Jesus and all in with his church, and they are a pastor's great joy. Spectators, consumers, participants. I'd have to say, after 33 years of doing this, that that author's pretty close to being on target. But you know what? The truth is, it's not about the pastor's joy. It's about your joy. It's about you finding your function in the body, your place where you can, you can offer your gifts and exercise your gifts, and people are blessed by you. And you go, yes, I get to do this? <laughs> Seriously, I get to do this? I would add that around here we believe it's scriptural to do ministry in teams just for the mutual care that comes from being on a team, not, not as a solo effort. There are a lot of reasons, a lot of theological, relational, practical reasons for doing ministry in teams. If you want to know more, as I like to say, ask a bald guy. Because bald guys know stuff. So <laughs> ask that bald guy. He knows a lot about that. All right, say this. There's work for me to do here. The body needs me. My team needs me in the game. All right, we're going to wrap this up. So I'm going to ask all of you to stand. Would you? Would you stand up? And um, we have here in our church for over 30 years what we call a membership covenant. It's what every ministry partner for over three decades has committed to, covenanted with, in order to be a part of this body, what we call a ministry partner. And uh, to me, it seemed appropriate for us today, in light of what we've been talking about, to reaffirm our commitment to these covenant priorities, if you can do it sincerely from your heart. If you're not there, uh, don't, okay? Listen to others, though. Listen to those around you, because... Hundreds of people here in this room have committed to these things and are seeking to live them out, myself included. So let's, let's uh, reaffirm our commitment together. Before God and my church family, I commit myself by God's grace to worship regularly with my church family, to connect weekly with my small group family, to serve gratefully in a ministry that blesses my church family, to give cheerfully towards my church family's needs and mission, and to reach out lovingly to those outside of God's family and point them to Jesus. Are you committed to those things? 
Listen, we're a body. We're interdependent. Your choice to either connect or stay isolated matters not just to you, but to all of us. Your decision to either serve on a ministry team or sit on the sidelines and watch others serve has an impact on the whole body, on the whole team. We impact each other in ways we may not have thought. If you are in the room today, you are one here who has never yet, never yet to this point in your life, placed your full and complete trust in Jesus Christ for your forgiveness of sins, for salvation. If you've never yet in your heart bowed to King Jesus, you've never yet recognized that his death on the cross was for you to cover and pay for your sins you've never yet affirmed that Jesus is Lord through his resurrection from the dead, I urge you today to place your full trust and faith in Jesus alone for forgiveness and salvation and eternal life. Stop trusting in your own good works, your own noble efforts to make you right with God and to give you righteousness before God. It's not enough. You need a Savior who is perfectly righteous, and there's only been one. His name's Jesus. I urge you, place your full faith in Jesus alone for salvation. You can do that right now. If you are one in this room who has sensed a possible calling from God into the ministry, something maybe has been stirring up in your soul, maybe you're not sure what to do with it, scares you a little bit, If you think maybe God's calling me into the ministry as my life's vocation, my life's work, I would urge you to talk with somebody about that. Talk with a pastor about it. Ask for direction. Ask for prayer so that you're clear on this. It's so important. God is still calling people into shepherd leadership in his church. Maybe you're in the room today and you, as we've in this series talked about being gifted by the Holy Spirit. Maybe you've sensed the pull of the Holy Spirit to offer your gifts and offer yourself to this church body to serve and minister here on on some ministry team. You might not have any idea what that would be. Then I would urge you, before you leave, to take that little connection card and check the box that says interested in serving in a ministry. Somebody will reach out and contact you and start the conversation, okay? And explore some possibilities and help you see what the path could be. If you're in the room and you have not ever become a full ministry partner with the rest of us here, but you sense Jesus leading you to do so, I would urge you to take your worship folder and look at it and find out when the next New Life class is being offered and sign up for it, register for it, sign in blood, offer your firstborn, whatever it takes to get into that class. That's our first step towards being a full-fledged ministry partner here in this church. I urge you to do that church needs you. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, what a brilliant master you are. To have designed this thing the way that you did is is incredible. And Lord, when it's working right, there's nothing better. And we like to feel at New Life here that we're pretty healthy as a church. I hope that we are. But I pray 
that in your way and in your time, you would move us forward. You would morph us more and more into the kind of church that you were thinking about when you were hanging on that cross, suffering to redeem a people for yourself, to dwell with forever. Would you make us more and more into that kind of healthy, vibrant, life-giving, truth and love church for your great name's sake and for the sake of our community that we live in and our missionaries and people around the world who need a gospel witness. And I ask this in your precious and holy name. Amen.